Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, joining Politicology for the first time is Zach Tchaikovsky. Zach has been a political operative for more than a decade beginning his career as a field organizer for President Obama, managing a successful Southern California congressional campaign in 2018, and going on to become political director at the Lincoln Project with us during the 2020 cycle. Currently, he's the political director for More Perfect Union. Zach, it's great to see you live in the studio. Ron, thanks so much for having me on. This is really exciting, isn't it? It's really, really exciting. Returning to the Roundup, is Liz Gilbert. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's campaign, and she's worked on the past three DNC national conventions. In fact, Liz is the youngest person ever to serve as president of the convention. And over the last decade, she's worked on presidential, Senate, and gubernatorial campaigns across the country. Liz, welcome back to Politicology. Ron, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you guys. I am really excited because this is like the youngest roundup ever for us. That's this fantastic. Is a, this, is a, this is a thoroughly millennial uh, panel today, I think. We love that. Are we all millennials? Yeah. I feel like we're obligated to make fun of the Zoomers a little bit. <laughs> a little right? bit. <laughs> like we got to do that if we're a bunch of millennials uh, now. On this week's roundup, the crescendoing calls for urgent action and reform in the Senate after Republicans killed the bill to establish a January 6th commission, the absolutely bonkers myth of Trump's impending reinstatement and Mike Flynn's jubilance for a junta, and finally, what happened in Austin that temporarily held off the Texas GOP's latest voter suppression efforts and where the fight for democracy stands today. Let's get started. So late last week, the bill to establish a January 6th commission failed in the Senate 54-35. And just to be clear, that was 54 in favor of moving forward with the bill and just 35 against. But because this vote was to overcome the Republican filibuster, 60 votes were needed to proceed. And so now with democracy literally on the line, there are some escalating calls for the Senate to reform or do away with the filibuster. So on Tuesday, more than 100 self-described scholars of democracy, which we should note include professors of political science and government from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton, Penn, Columbia, University of Chicago, Johns Hopkins, all signed on to a statement, which you can read in its entirety at the link in today's show notes. But in it, they describe several actions recently taken by Republican officials and legislatures around the country that undermined fundamental principles of democracy, including expanding power to override election outcomes, restricting ballot access, and curbing early and mail-in voting, which was key in the 2020 election, Provisions meant to intimidate or scare poll workers and nonpartisan election administrators. And they warned that these new laws, quote, politicizing the administration and certification of elections could enable some state legislatures or partisan election officials to do what they failed to do in 2020, reverse the outcome of a free and fair election. They also issue a stark warning and call for, and I'm quoting again, members of Congress to do whatever is necessary, including suspending the filibuster in order to pass national voting and election administration standards 
that both guarantee the vote to all Americans equally and prevent state legislatures from manipulating the rules in order to manufacture the result they want. Our democracy is fundamentally at stake. History will judge what we do at this moment. So, Liz, first, let's start with the commission vote, yeah? It was reported that McConnell himself was whipping the vote, uh, asking his, which is unusual for him to do it personally, asking his caucus members to vote it down as a personal favor. Um, So why... First of all, what do you make of him him taking this task on personally as opposed to sure. leaving it to the whip? And why did most Republicans vote against the commission and, and unpack the political calculation here? Yeah, I think we all need to be very cognizant of the verbiage used, personal favor, right? Um, I think this is very scary and something that we should all really pay attention to because as political People, I think that, you know, you, Zach, and I would know that using those kinds of words happens, but to say it so uh, blatantly and open to the public shows that, you know, they really just don't care about how they are coming across when they are talking about whipping these votes, McConnell in particular. Um, I do not know why he would ask his colleagues for this favor. I have been looking at this very closely and still, you know, can't figure out why this is so near and dear to him, especially in light of his comments after the January 6th insurrection. Um, But it is, to your point, very unique that McConnell would be doing this personally and then using the words personal favor. Um, I think it is very alarming that something so... Um, you know, important as this was yeah. not able to to happen in the way that I think the three of us and and many many others would would have hoped. Yeah. So Zach, you know, to me, and this this is going to sound very cynical, but I think it, it I think it is the politics of this are are essentially that of of course they needed to shoot this down in the Senate because they cannot possibly have a bipartisan commission because that would basically remove their ability to criticize Democrats, right? But, so basically, we are going to have a commission. Um, Nancy Pelosi is, you know, rumored to be putting something together right now. It's going to be Democrat only, probably. And that's just going to give Republicans all the room they need to to, to beat it to death politically, rhetorically, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's where this is headed. And, and I, I assume that was the calculation for I mean, I think it's a sad reality, but you got to ask one question, which is if if this commission goes through, does that make it harder for Republicans to get elected and reelected? And the answer is yes. Yeah, So Mitch McConnell didn't want to do it. Right. And I think that's a very simple calculus, unfortunately. I think it's a a sad state of affairs. That is the dominant uh, thought process. But I think that's that's. Seems to be what it is for, for in my mind, and it also gets to personal favor because there is no there is no underlying principle here. There is no right. rationale for voting exactly. against something like this, other than well, we we really need to hold on to power, so I need you to do me a favor here. And yeah, I mean, yeah, Ron, I think it goes right into the heart of the um, filibuster issue, which is now that it's being used as a political tool, not a legislative one. And so to both of your points about this being just so hyper political, to watch that go down in the United States Senate is is um is broken and, and very sad, I think. Okay. So speaking of the filibuster, Zach, there is a long list of Democratic policy priorities. HR one, I would put at the top of that list. There's the Equality Act, infrastructure, et cetera. All of which, in all likelihood, will not break the 60-vote threshold in the Senate, meaning around the filibuster instead of over it seems to be the path forward. 
Do Democrats have the political capital or will to take this step for legislation to protect our very democracy? So I think that you, we saw yesterday, Kristen Sinema pretty clearly indicated that she would not support any legislation that removed the filibuster. So I think it's unlikely that we're going to see it happen. I would also say, uh, and, and Ron, you know the stat better than I do. What's the likelihood that Democrats control the Senate for the next 10 years? Yeah. So in fact, uh, David Shore, who's the head of data science at Open Labs, recently predicted Democrats can expect to hold the Senate for approximately 5% over the next 10 years, 5% of the Five percent of the next ten years, right? If uh, if nothing is done about the, if nothing is done about democracy reform, so you know, look, I'm not an expert on on the filibuster or the mechanisms of the Senate, but I am you know pretty good at the campaign side of things, and I would be mighty mighty concerned uh, with that five to ten percent number to get rid of the filibuster, right? I mean, if you're looking at a situation in which you know there's Republican control of the Senate for in all likelihood all ten of the next ten years, mm-hmm. based on that stat, you know, mm-hmm. if it's five percent, then yeah. I mean, if we do nothing, it is very likely Republicans will take back the Senate and then hold it for a very long time. That's just right. the nature of the Senate. And right. So, I mean, with that in mind, I mean, are, are people thinking about the consequences of removing the filibuster? So I think if you get rid of it yeah. and there's a very real chance that Republicans will control the Senate in 2022, there's a very real ch- chance that Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump will get reelected in 2024. And I think the people that are calling the loudest for the uh, the, the, the dismantling of the filibuster I don't know that they fully thought through what that looks like afterwards. Okay, I think that's a fair point, but I uh, like um, this is this is funny. We're we, we're gonna, we're going to role play for a minute here. Let's I'm the it. one advocating. Well, I mean, I would advocate for breaking the filibuster so that we have the opportunity to move forward as a country, as a democracy, because that seems to be right. what's at stake right now. Right. Right. If we do nothing, then the filibuster. Who's going to remember the filibuster? I think right. before we can do anything, though, we have to be honest with ourselves about what that means exactly. And I don't think that we have fully thought through uh, collectively what that would look like if we were to get rid of this. Because, Ron, you're a Nevada guy. Yeah. Uh, Harry Reid, I believe, made some changes to the filibuster. Sure and I don't, if I recall correctly, uh, the end result was not exactly what people were expecting. That's right. So, OK, it's a, it's a fair point you raise. But, Liz, I want to take an aside here for a second. Do most voters care about things like the filibusters? Now, I know I know our listeners do. Um, but don't you think most voters care more about campaign promises and whether or not the people and the party they vote for delivers on those? Yeah, Ron, it's such a good question. And I love listening to the two of you talk about this and this role playing here. And Zach and I have gotten along particularly well for many reasons. But I think because as some of the younger class of Democratic operatives, we we run fairly moderate on some of these issues. Ron, I think to your question about how voters think, I don't believe that voters know the process of Mm -hmm. what a filibuster is. And when you are running, you're not talking about it on the campaign trail. And so is it something that you believe during elections impacts your life in a day-to-day way? Yeah, Absolutely not. But then you look at what is happening in Washington right now. And I think folks who have become, you know, if you were politically aware or active before, I think you are now hyper aware and active. And I think folks are saying, you know, oh my God, what is happening in Washington? What what does this Senate composition mean for me right now? And I do think that individuals are finally seeing the way that something like the filibuster can 
impact their lives um, in in a day-to-day way. Look, I don't believe that we should fall on party lines when it comes to the filibuster. I'm a Democrat. I say abolish it. I'm a Republican. I say keep it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we hold on to the filibuster to keep reverence to history. Um, So I think that argument uh, should be thrown out the window. I think all of us are still learning a lot about the filibuster in the modern Senate. And I think that when the Georgia special ultimately happen. I think we all as Americans, quite frankly, owed it to ourselves to learn more about the filibuster when we saw what the makeup was going was going to be. Yeah. So I I agree with you. I think most voters don't really know or care that much. Most voters don't really know or care that much about the filibuster un- until until we land in this situation where it's a 50-50 Senate and most of the country just voted to end the authoritarian Trump nightmare, and now nothing seems to be getting done. Nothing seems to be getting done. So why keep it, Zach, Democrat? Zach, <laughs> Democratic, Democratic operative Zach Chakowsky, why should we keep the filibuster? So let me be very clear. This, this is not my area to of expertise. Clear, I'm the ex-Republican You're, here. Yep. Okay, so go ahead, because so, I say blast it. I do not know enough about the filibuster to say definitively yes, no, either way. Right? Okay. However, I do know that we have not considered all of the different outcomes, all of the different scenarios this could lead to. And I think that before we make it a decision of this size, we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to the country to think through these things a little more. Thinking about what does the filibuster being gone look like Mm -hmm. in 2023 if there's a very different composition in the Senate and in the House? Zach, I think that's like the operative way to to think about it. Yeah. Um, and Ron, I love the way that you're pushing him. Look, I not to not to jump in, but Zach, maybe to hand you um, a life preserver here for a second. Hit me. Um, in in 2014, um, I had the honor and privilege of working for Wendy Davis, who rose to fame because of her 13 hour filibuster. And so you see the way in which something, you know, an act like that can impact the average person. And so the filibuster originally made sense as a way to protect the voices of the embattled minority. And now no one actually does this. They just threaten to filibuster, which kills everything and makes a super majority always required. So that in and of itself is broken. However, um, we have also seen in history ways in which it has impacted positively. Um, I know I'm using Wendy's case very specifically, but you you can see in more recent history ways in which that um, you mm. know method and mechanism of the filibuster has been able to stand for the minority and and the voiceless. There's that one episode of the West Wing as well. It's a good example. (laughs) (laughs) Every episode of the West Wing. There's that one West Wing episode where they filibuster. And like, yeah, yeah, that's a great episode. And I encourage people to watch it. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but isn't this the one, and like, I know that Biden has not signaled any kind of willingness to break the filibuster, but he has, I think... Uh, shown an openness to to basically reverting to a standing filibuster, or that he would be open to that. Is that accurate? Which is which lists to your point, so our listeners are, understand the difference. You're you're talking about a time when it used to be uh, customary for members who want to filibuster to stand up, give a long speech, basically to to. Um, to hold everything up by their physical presence on the floor, That's by correct. talking. We don't do that in the Senate anymore. All any one of those 100 senators has to do is say, it, they can put a secret hold on any piece of legislation. All they have to do is 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 say so. They don't even have to put their names on it. And by, by, and by putting a secret hold on a piece of legislation, they thereby 
um, obstruct the entire body from moving forward because they're basically it's a it's a threat, but it That's can exactly be an anonymous right, threat. Ron. That's exactly right. It's a threat, and so it makes you feel that you need the supermajority. Whereas, again, in Wendy Davis, and I know this very intimately, having worked in Texas in 2014, she had to stand for 13 hours, not touch her desk, not have water, not suck on an ice cube. She had a catheter installed. You can't use the restroom. I mean, talk about understanding parliamentary procedure and standing up for the voiceless. So again, I know a very specific example, but I think an important one. And so to your point, if there is a way to, um, you know, offer some kind of reform, Mm -hmm. um, you know, going back to Zach's point, understanding the longer term implications of what the abolition of the filibuster would look like politically um, for our chambers. Like we just can't keep the filibuster for nostalgic purposes only. It has to be Absolutely. And I think the problem, though, is, is you get the, the left perspective and you get the right perspective. And I think in reality, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Now, it might be leaning a little bit more to the left. It might be leaning a little bit more to the right. But I don't think that either party has fully considered the ramifications of what, what is happening right now. Speaking of okay. the long-term political impact, one thing that I cannot make any sense of is what Kirsten Cinema is doing. I, I understand where Joe Manchin is coming from. He's in the Trumpiest or the second Trumpiest state in the country. I can see why he would be pushing back on this. But I mean, Kirsten Cinema is is a friend to no one right now. Democrats are mad yeah. at her. Republicans are praising her in the in the short term, but I don't think that's an alliance that's going to last, especially when she's up for reelection in a few years. So I, I really cannot make sense of what her approach is or or what her rationale is right now. Okay, here's the one other counterpoint, which is, and this is something that Shore yeah. mentioned, um, which is you know. That 5% stat that he mentioned was basically if we do nothing about democracy reform. If we right. do get democracy democracy reform done, we can raise that likelihood to 30%. Okay. So does that change your calculation about the fear of what Republicans might do if we destroy the filibuster now? So, so I just want to be very clear that, yeah. that no whether uh, the filibuster is removed or not, mm-hmm. in all likelihood, at minimum, seven of the next 10 years, can, Republicans are going to control the Senate, right? Yeah. So – I think, like again, like if you're a Democrat, think about what that looks like with yeah. Republican control of the Senate. It's, it is in all likelihood going to happen. Are you prepared for that? And I don't think that I've heard a single elected official. I don't think I've heard their staff. I don't think I've seen people on Twitter talking about, are we prepared for what it's like to have a filibusterless world and Republican control of the Senate? And look, some people might be comfortable with that. Some people I don't think are, but very few people are at least are thinking through what that's going to look like. And then you can't make a decision without being informed. And okay. until you talk about that, you're not. It's fair, perfectly fair, perfectly fair. I think that we also have to think through what it might look like to not have democracy in America anymore. Okay. Let's, mm, yes. This is why it's a complicated be, issue. Because filibuster be damned. Yeah. If, if, we, if we keep the filibuster and lose democracy, then, you know, who's really winning? Yeah. Yeah, I think, Ron, just really quickly, you know, Zach brought up um, your tie back uh, to Nevada as a native there. And, you know, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, I think his I I think Adam Gentleson was a former Reid aide. Mm -hmm. And so he said in his book. Killswitch, he was talking about how, you know, the the role of the greatest uh, deliberative body, you know, has come to carry out their work without a lot of deliberation. And that it's a place where ambitious, um, I think it was the Times that said, you know, it's ambitious legislation. That's where, you know, it goes to die now. And so that's why I brought up, you know, the modern Senate, because we don't just keep the filibuster to be, um, you know, reverent to our history. But I think to Zach's point, there's so many things to think about that maybe people are, you know, Zach and I have both outed ourselves not as experts on the filibuster. So maybe people are (laughs) having these conversations, but, um, 
if we want to think about it politically as well as legislatively, those two things do not currently align. So how do you reconcile that? And I think that's kind of where the argument will stand. Maybe we should have Adam on to come talk about the filibuster. I think that would be a great conversation. One I thing I got to add, though. I, oh, wait, I've yeah. got one thing I want to add, which is that even if we, okay, if, if politically speaking, I want to know what you think about this, Zach. Politically speaking, if Democrats do not uh, remove the filibuster, it does become a very effective grassroots rallying cry for the midterms, doesn't it? On, like, on does which it, side? Doesn't this become—for uh, Democrats. Yeah. Like, it becomes a fantastic turnout mechanism to get people to show up to basically, like, fine, if we're not going to remove the filibuster, let's get a supermajority in the House. You know what I mean? Like, it's a great point. You know, I, I think— when we think about the spread of, of COVID, right, yeah. it spreads asymmetrically. When we think about the spread of political information right now, it also spreads asymmetrically. So in mm. some areas, it's going to be an unbelievable recruiting tool for candidates. Yeah. It's going to be great to drive turnout. Mm -hmm. In others, it's going to depress turnout because people are going to say, oh, you know, Democrats didn't fight for us, so why are we going to go fight uh, for them, right? And, uh, you know, I think the thing that I want to say, though, about abolishing the filibuster is people forget, but Icarus flew for a few minutes and— it's not a happy ending. So, like, we got to think through not just, like, that two-minute, like, what's going to happen, that two-year stretch. Like, what happens four years, six years, eight years, ten years down the road? Are we comfortable living mm. with the uh, the consequences of our actions? And and to your point, Ron, about yeah. restoring, you know, democracy even yep. returning, the question is, can you pass— any of this critical legislation um, on the Biden docket without the abolition of the filibuster. So that's why I think, you know, legislatively and politically, it's so at odds. Um, and so we, and by we, I mean the United States Senate um, <laughs> has some really, really tough decisions um, to yeah. make. I mean, yeah. from a political perspective, though, I think if, if they do decide to go forward, get rid yeah. of the filibuster, they have to pass everything. I mean, everything. They have got to throw the kitchen sink through yeah. Uh, yeah, Congress right. because one shot. It, that is, right. is going to be it. Yeah. You know, it's either going to work or you're going to be out of power for the next yep. decade. That's totally point. right. All right. Let's now talk about what happens when there aren't any consequences for an attempted coup. There was a conference in Dallas over Memorial Day weekend organized by QAnon adherents called the Forgotten Country Patriot Roundup. And these names, you guys. Okay. And some familiar. <laughs> like, what would you name your conference, by the way, Ron, I, if you're having a QAnon conference? I don't know. I, nothing quite that good. Q I'm sure I assure you. Oh, that's good. QAnon is great. <gasps> oh, Zach, don't get that oh, hashtag you going. heard it here first, Why is there folks? not QAnon merch okay. yet? <laughs> some familiar faces showed up at this. I'm going to say it again. Forgotten Country Patriot Roundup. Uh First, let's listen to Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, respond to an audience member's question. I want to know why what happened in Minamar can't happen here. No reason. I mean, it, it should happen. No reason. That's right. To be clear, we're talking about Myanmar, not <laughs> Minamar. Uh, that was former national security advisor who also suggested in December that Trump could invoke martial law to force do-over elections in states that Biden won, tacitly endorsing the idea of a military coup to overthrow our democratically elected government in the United States. 
Now, before we talk about Flynn, I also want to highlight what everybody's favorite lawyer, Sidney Powell, said at the very same conference. Let's take a listen. That he can simply be reinstated, that a new inauguration date is set. And Biden is told to move out of the White House. And... And, and, and President Trump should be moved back in. I, I'm sure there's not going to be credit for time lost, unfortunately, because the Constitution itself sets the date for inauguration. But he should definitely get the remainder of his term and, and make the best of it. That's for sure. While you're processing that, <laughs> then on Tuesday, oh Maggie God. Haberman of The New York Times reported that, quote, Trump has been telling a number of people he's in contact with that he expects he will get reinstated by August. And she followed this up by saying, Trump is not putting out statements about the audits in states just for the sake of it. He's been laser focused on them, according to several people who've spoken with him, as well as Washington Post reporting a few weeks ago. And by the way, we should note that that August timeline comes from none other than my pillow, Mike. Lindell, my my pillow man, Mike Lindell. So not only is this the big lie, uh, obviously alive and well months after the failed insurrection attempt and Biden's inauguration, it almost sounds like they're planting the seeds for the next coup right in front of us, out in the out in the open. And the former guy, you know what? We're going to stop calling him the former guy. Uh, disgraced ex president Donald Trump is completely bought in. So first, back to Flynn. We should note there was fairly widespread condemnation of his comments, including from Liz Cheney. And Flynn later walked it back, claiming he meant the opposite of what we all heard him say out loud. But ever since the military coup in Myanmar on February 1st, some members of the far right, including people in Trump's base and the QAnon crowd, have openly celebrated and endorsed the idea of the same thing happening here. This wasn't Flynn jumping the shark, as he has done for years. He is essentially meeting Trump supporters where they are. Liz, it seems like on one side we have political leaders endorsing the idea idea of the military deposing a sitting president. And meanwhile, Democrats are still behaving like Republicans are good faith actors. So how do you message the insanity and danger of rhetoric like Flynn's? And by the way, Does this make you reconsider your positions on the filibuster? Go ahead. (laughs) Um, I think first I want to flippantly say if the man can't even pronounce Myanmar correctly, (laughs) I don't think he's fully aware of what's happening there. And I can only speak to this. Um, I'm very fortunate um, that I can understand what's happening here. My sister, who is an assistant professor at the United States Air Force Academy, um, this is her area of study. And so we just did a lot of Mm. talking about this over the last couple of days. And I think it's just important that folks understand that the democratically elected leader in Myanmar is currently imprisoned Mm -hmm. by murderous generals. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it almost pains me to even dignify having, you know, to talk about this topic But I also know that we have to because people listen to Flynn and they listen to Powell and they think, you know, that that is gospel and that is truth. You can't just throw around the word coup. And Ron, to your point, what Flynn is suggesting in particular is another insurrection. It's treason. Totally. I mean, he is advocating for the violent overthrow of a democratically elected government. 
the fact that he even still has an audience, I think is what scares me the most about this. Um, and I think we could go on a very long tangent here about how <laughs> civics education couldn't be more important. Like when I hear the cheers in the audience, when he makes these comments and people are clapping and wailing and showing their signs of approval, it's like, did you go to American government class yeah. in middle school? Yeah. And I think that's a, another tangent, but but equally important in this dialogue that yeah. it's all about education here, unfortunately. So I brought up this quote when I was talking to Lucy Caldwell about Lee Stefanik uh, a week or two ago. And I, like, I think the right way to think about this audience is not that they belong to Michael Flynn, but they're there and he just found that. The quote is, there go my people. I must find out where they are going so I can lead them. Um, uh, Alexander Auguste Ledru Roland is the is the person who that quote is attributed to? Oui. But that's the idea. Uh, like these people, th this is where Trump's base are. This is where a lot of them already are, and Michael yeah. Flynn's just giving voice to them. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead, Zach. There were two kind of immediate questions that jumped out at me as, as we were talking about this and, and listening about this. Yeah. Uh, and the first is, and I don't think I'm being hyperbolic here, but is this the single greatest betrayal of a high-ranking military official since Benedict Arnold? I mean, this it, it, we have not in my lifetime, yeah. uh, to my knowledge, seen anything like this before. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I think you're right. There is widespread condemnation, but generally when a high-ranking former military official calls for a violent coup, uh, there needs to be more than just condemnation. There needs yeah. to be consequences. Yeah. I mean, real-life consequences. Yeah. Like, you go to jail when you suggest overthrowing the government kind of consequences, yes. right? The other one is, I really don't, and like, I'm not a lawyer. It's another thing I'm not an expert in. Uh, I really don't understand how Sidney Powell was allowed to keep saying this stuff. She's getting sued for $1.3 billion right now. Yeah. She argued in that lawsuit that no reasonable person would, would believe her. Would believe her. Yeah. And yet, yeah, people continue to believe her. Well, I mean, maybe she's just trying to, you know, be a duller, you know, more boring version of Milo Yiannopoulos. Like, maybe she's just trying to be a provocateur <laughs> at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, totally. maybe yes. she, okay, Ugh. just don't take me seriously. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say crazy things all day long. But doesn't okay. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm gonna harken back to the filibuster. But there are people who are calling for like. It's either democracy or the filibuster. And this kind yeah. of thing is what underscores that argument, and it's why I buy it. But, Ron, you've acknowledged that in all likelihood, the yeah. folks that those folks are going to vote for are going to be in control of the Senate and for the, the majority of the next decade, no matter what happens. And you still feel good about getting rid of the filibuster. Okay, we've been talking about the threats to our democracy in the context of the midterms and 2024 elections. But should we be more attuned to something else happening sooner? Like if Flynn is endorsing a coup and Trump bought into this, he's bought into this reinstatement idea, that means his supporters will probably buy in too. Where is this going to head? I mean, where is this January 6th part two? Do we even get to the midterms before something catastrophic happens again? I mean, look, this is this is the difficulty, right? We, we do have to worry about the short term, but we also have to worry about the long term. And so we can't sac you know make these short term things that feel good or, or make sense that then set us up for failure in the long term, right? And so I don't know how you balance those things necessarily, but I just know you have to be thinking about the long term as well. You cannot yeah. solely focus on the short term because otherwise we're going to end up in the same place. It's just going to take a little yeah. bit longer. Yeah. 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 Go ahead, Liz. No, I oh, just, okay. I, again, going back to the, you know, the legislative and political priorities, yeah. I, every topic that we're discussing, Ron, it's like, you know, I said this to you. It's like, I, do something. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Do something. <laughs> every, like, it's do something because we can see the whole thing potentially going over the edge. Yeah. Right? Yes. And, and 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 I get it. But you know what? 2020 was not a turning the page for America. 2020 was averting certain catastrophe no from happening. It no was question. live to fight another day. 
That's what happened in in November. And so I like I, I get the long term view. I I really do. But you got to make it that far first. And I think the circumstances are so much more dire than than uh, than than a lot of people are talking about. Um, also, history tells us that after failed coups, we see new attempts. This is true. Which, which mm-hmm. makes it all the more like, for example, you know, Hitler famously, and I hate to just invoke Hitler because it's so cliche, but. Uh, famously staged a coup years before he became chancellor of Germany in 1933. Yeah. Russia's coup in 1991 and 1993. You know, it, this makes it all the more important to actually punish those who try to overthrow the government. So, you know, what price do you both think we are paying for Republicans' cowardice on impeachment and on the January 6th commission? And I get, we're not going to keep talking about the filibuster, but what do you think Democrats ought to do about it, if not break the filibuster and pass democracy reform? On the 1-6 commission front? I mean, I think— Sure, I, whatever. Look, I think in the same way that the calculus is, for Mitch McConnell is that a 1-6 commission is bad for Republicans, incumbents, and candidates. I think it is good for Democrats, right? I think that it is the right thing to do, it's I believe. It's good for America. It's good for America, but like— and maybe this is gross to me, but you got to think about it from a political perspective because that's how the elected officials. That's are how thinking they're about thinking it. about it, right? Yeah. So, like, right. it's it's good. To if any of, of our listeners think that we're being cynical, yeah. we're just reflecting how these people are actually making decisions. I, so. I wish we lived in the West Wing world where a really persuasive argument was enough, but you got to look at the political calculus, right? And the political calculus for Democrats is that a one-six commission is good for business. It's going to raise a lot of money. It's going to make it easier to beat some Republican incumbents. Um, you know, in, in the same way that Benghazi tanked Hillary Clinton's trustworthiness, and you know, about a dozen other important measurements, uh, it's going to do the same thing for dozens of Republicans. You know, Lauren Boebert is a great example, right? Yeah. You know, there are all these rumors yeah. floating around about how in touch she was with some of the folks that were protesting that day. Yeah. And no one really knows the answer. That is important for America to find out. But her district is not nearly as red as people think it is. It is not like Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. That is a pickup opportunity for Democrats in the House. It is advantageous as well as, I would argue, okay. the morally correct thing to do. Okay. Is that too cynical? Yeah, no, no, I, no, no, no. I, I, I love it, Zach. Again, a reason why we get along so well is because it's like what um, as the bottom line or as the final page, let's say, will yeah. make a difference, yeah. right? And so again, this political versus legislative agenda, I think, Ron, when you ask the question, what price are we paying? Elections matter. Mm-hmm. Like if anything that people should be seeing in Washington is that those that we choose to elect we must hold them accountable and we need to elect people that we believe will advance an agenda that makes, mm-hmm. you know, American lives better, safer. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the list goes on and on. And so, you know, it's not just throwing away an election every time one comes up and it's not just focusing on presidential elections. It's understanding that in off cycle years. So, you know, this year there are two governor's races up and, you know, two states are in play. Mm-hmm. I mean, understanding um, elective cycles and being involved in, you know, local races. I mean, sincerely, it's getting involved in politics. It's getting involved at the local level all the way up to the national level and finding those to elect who we believe will maintain an agenda that is in the best interest of this country, no matter what. So let's talk about the local level. Well, the state level, rather, Texas uh, the Texas voting law. There was a showdown in Austin over an extremely restrictive voting law uh, that ended with Democrats running out the clock on the legislative session by vacating the Capitol and dissolving the quorum. 
Despite the Democrats' bold action, their fix was only temporary. As Governor Abbott has indicated, he'll call the legislature to special session to pass the bill. Um, the failed bill, SB7, would impose new limits on mail-in voting, eliminate drive through voting, increase punishments for poll workers who make mistakes, and would restrict how and when people can vote in person. It also would have increased criminal penalties and created new criminal offenses around voting. Alarmingly, it also makes it blatantly easier to overturn an election with hardly any pretense. And, and I'm going to quote from the bill here. It reads... If the number of votes illegally cast in the election is equal to or greater than the number of votes necessary to change the outcome of an election, the court may declare the election void without attempting to determine how individual voters voted, end quote. Turning the temperature up even higher on Memorial Day, Governor Abbott tweeted, quote, I will veto Article 10 of the budget passed by the legislature. Article 10 funds the legislative branch. No pay for those who abandon their responsibilities. Stay tuned. So first of all, I just want to say bravo to the Texas Dems for taking a stand. Like, yeah. I, like I get it. It's, gonna, it's ultimately futile. But you know what? We're talking about it. So is the rest of the country. They're drawing attention to this. You know, there's and one I think good for them for playing the same kind of parliamentary tricks that Mitch McConnell does in the Senate. Like they're using whatever little power they have in order to fight. And I say, I say well done. So, Zach, does the Texas Democrats' uh, aggressive counterattack help set an example for Democrats nationally? You know, I think it does because you've got to try, right? At the yes. very least, you've got to always try, right? Uh, and I think everybody's mom told them that when they were a kid, and yeah. it's true. Your mom was right. You should yeah. definitely try. Uh, the thing that really jumped out to me beyond what we just talked about yeah. is that, you know, Texas has a $248.6 billion budget. That's how much mm -hmm. they spend every year. Mm -hmm. uh, and $410.2 million go to running the Capitol and the legislative branch. And Abbott is withholding that line item yeah. out of pure political retribution. Yes. We do not seek political retribution in this country historically. Right. We are seeing that right now. Mm -hmm. The more that that happens, the more concerned we should all be. That is so deeply concerning. Mm -hmm. That is banana republic nonsense. And that's we've really got good, to stop that. That's a really, really good And we're point. seeing it. We're seeing it in so many different ways. You know, the— We've seen folks single out corporations saying, you know, yeah. stay out of politics. We have seen it now in Texas. Uh, I mean, that yeah. was what Trump is famous for in many yeah. ways. Uh, yeah. This cannot be normalized. There needs to be widespread condemnation, not just for the restrictive voting bill, yeah. but also for actively seeking political retribution against his opponents. So why aren't Democrats focusing on that piece instead of the because I, because like I yeah. agree with you, but uh, but I am Ooh, I am that's a good question. I, I am I am. Um, I'm a little bit, uh, I really hate to be such a cynic, yeah. but I'm really skeptical that that trend is going to reverse or calm down. It's just going to get worse. Like we're on that trajectory as a country. It's not going to turn around. It's only going to get worse. But my question to yeah. your point is, I like I agree with you, it yeah. is banana republic shit. Why aren't Democrats focusing on political retribution over the... So I think you just answered my question, but I just want to make sure. Can I swear on this? Yeah, why not? Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the answer is different depending on the day. Yes. There sure. is not a single thing in this country that any voter gives less of a fuck about than how much an elected official gets paid. Like, True. no, except for maybe the people that are in their families. True. No one cares. True. No one cares. I mean, it's, it's, in fact, it's outrageous how little our elected officials get paid. Yeah. But nobody yeah. cares. And yeah. nobody wants to spend more on that because— it is a great political talking point, right? Oh, yeah. So let's say Democrats say, this is political retribution. We're, this is insane. We got to stop this. 
it is, a, it is an attack ad waiting to happen. Democrats are more focused on getting paid than they are making the lives of Texans better, yep. right? Yep. So I think they're kind of in a bind. Um, okay. Yeah. Liz? So having worked in Texas a handful of cycles ago, I have sincere respect for the mastery of the rules of the Texas House and Senate. I mean, these legislators are savvy and they are extremely powerful. There are some legislators in the state of Texas who represent more people than United States senators, just because of the sheer number of people who live in that state. And I think if you take it all the way back to the ice storm in Texas and what happened there and the ill preparedness that the government, um, you know, had on display, you show that the legislature's priorities aren't the people of Texas. And this is just another very clear example. I don't think you can say it is 2021 and making voter voting harder for people is like the trendy, cool thing to do. It's scary because we are seeing it be the trendy, cool thing to do in some of these red states. And that is petrifying. We should be working as a country. And I think, again, back to D.C. and the filibuster and the Biden agenda, we should be working to make voting as easy as possible. And so when these legislators in Texas are saying we're here to protect Texans and election integrity, that really is a veiled attempt to say, holy shit, we see that Democrats are making incredible gains in this state and we must stop it. You have to say, or you have to think that Democrats must be doing something right for the Republican-led legislature to say, whoa, we need to stop them right now and this is how we're going to do it. If Democrats were not making incredible gains, we wouldn't have seen SB7, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And Texas Democrats, we should note, have themselves called for federal action around voting rights, knowing, knowing that there's only so much they can do as a minority party, you know, in, in Texas, uh, as of May, uh, at mid-May, 14 states had enacted 22 laws with provisions that create new hurdles to vote. And another 61 such bills were still advancing in 18 states. And all of that is according to the Brennan Center. So keeping in mind our earlier discussion on, on, on bipartisanship and how much people don't care about that, um, how does this supercharged fight over elections, um, and and not just in Texas, but we can zoom out to to look at this around the country, uh, how does the fight over elections affect Biden's own goals for for what he would like to be bipartisan deals on things like infrastructure, well, he needs to be right. bipartisan deals on things like infrastructure? Um, and how much more time does he have before the clock runs out and, uh, and I mean, runs out politically on I mean, his ability to pursue these deals? Probably what like quarter four this year, maybe maybe Q one of next I, year if he's lucky. I mean, prob- mm, I don't think it goes that long. Yeah, I mean, it, he's he's got a few more months. Out, yeah, maybe a couple more. Then months. Then it's midterm season. I mean, I also just, just going back to Texas for a second. Yeah, sure. About why Abbott is pushing this because he formerly had a reputation as a pretty reasonable guy. Once uh, upon a time. Once upon a time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who might be running for governor in Texas in twenty twenty two? Beto O'Rourke, Beto. who would be a strong challenger, and who's been on the podcast. I'm very interested to hear if you think this next person might be a strong challenger. Okay. But Maddie Mac, Matthew McConaughey, Mister All Right, All Right, All Right himself oh, is considering <laughs> a run, allegedly. Man. So now, if he runs an independent, let me just tell everybody who's listening what's going to happen. Abbott cruises to re-election. Yes, there is exactly. no world in yeah. which an independent running in Texas but he's leads smart to anything and he won't other than do that. that. He's right. not. He's 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 smart and he has smart people around him. He won't do that. Right, I'm sure. 
One would hope. But you never know. I mean, yeah, but like, it, yeah, him or Beto, it's probably, you know, he wins if he runs as a Democrat. If the last five years have taught us anything, it's to never underestimate the ego of a celebrity. You know, look, I, I think, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, don't you, don't you think that's right though? If, I mean, I, I agree Beto's probably going to run, but like if it were McConaughey instead versus Abbott, I think McConaughey's got a shot. It would be really interesting no? to see how he runs, right? So let's yeah. let's say McConaughey says, I am running as an independent. Does the Democratic mm. Party then clear the field and say, okay, you know, we're going to go with you because that's going to give no, us the best shot? I don't think they can. They don't think they can? I don't no. think they can. What if Beto mm-hmm. says, no. we're all getting on board with McConaughey? Then yes. We're all hopping I, in the back I, of the then Jeep. Then I think the Texas Dems have, have, to have, the, have the opportunity to put together a pretty compelling like coalition behind him. Yeah. I do. I, I think that's the best shot. Well, Zach, I think first, instead of being in the back of a Jeep, we'd probably be in the back of a Lincoln. But look, I am very proud of my former colleagues who, after the 2014 cycle, um, and we got walloped, you they stayed, right? They stayed and they laid the groundwork for some amazing elections that have taken place since. And that's because we understood in Texas. And, and again, I'm a, a, you know, not a native to the state, but, but an incredible fan and a Democrat. So I understand just the importance, but there are folks on the ground in Texas who every single day breathe and bleed the opportunity to organize all over the state. And so I think there are folks who have been waiting cycle after cycle to really hit the nail on the head. And I think you will see that coming in the next cycle, which is why I believe SB7 even, you know, came Mm. to be. Um, Because I think Texas Democratic organizers deserve a ridiculous round of applause for the incredible work they've done. They have been a model to state parties and state Democratic organizations all over the country. And if they are fully funded and focused, I think we're going to see some amazing work out of Texas. So whomever the nominee is, whether we are with Mr. McConaughey um, in a vehicle of his choice or with Beto, who I think would really um, also be a great candidate. Um, I, I think we'll see some really inspiring work going down in Texas over the next couple of years and, and even beyond that. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> now that we're up to speed on the biggest stories of the week, what stories are you following that might've flown under the radar that may influence our politics in some unexpected way? Liz? Okay, so there are two for me. I think first is that the RNC chairwoman is already calling for the Commission on Presidential Debates to change its rules in advance of the next presidential cycle. Oh, I missed this. Yes. So I just saw that this morning and I was looking at that and I said, okay, this is red flag, sirens going, alert, alert. That's already so early. Yeah. She is saying if you, um, and and I I don't want to quote her wrong. So just the gist is, if you are not going to change your rules, I cannot recommend to my candidates that they attend the debates. And I think if we are seeing it this early, with so much other, let's use the word drama, going down in Washington, I think it is her hope, or maybe the Republican Party's hope, that this will fly under the radar. Mm. Um, because you're going to see calls for reforms. It's very similar to what's happening in Texas. You're seeing calls for reforms to already handicap Democrats where they are shining and doing particularly well. So what as somebody who's run a national convention before, yeah. Liz, what is this, what are the rules um 
that she's asking, what, what, how does she want them to change? And what does this mean? What's the impact of this? Yeah. So specifically, she is um, going after the CPD, the Commission on Presidential Debates, yep. um, because I just saw it this morning. I'm not too familiar um, with the exact changes. And quite honestly, I'm not sure if even exact changes would have <laughs> been suggested. We're just using yeah. you know, very fiery language. But she talks about how it is clear from the last presidential cycle that the rules were extremely partisan. And so I think if she's already trying to paint the picture wow. that the nonpartisan commission on oh, presidential wow. debates was actually, um, you know, a political partisan arm of the last election. She's already trying to, again, right out of the Trump yeah. playbook, yeah. delegitimize yeah. this nonpartisan entity saying, if you don't change your ways, I can't tell my candidates to attend. <sighs> okay. That's a terrifying That's a really, thing that you're following. It, it I was not following, and I wish, yeah, Oof. yeah. And it doesn't surprise me that it's that is flying under the radar, but because it's happening so far in advance. Um, but that's a really good one to pay attention to, Zach. You know, I think the there's there's two things. One's a one's a fun one. One is a less fun one. The fun one is. Uh, this is going to be our first Pride Month post-pandemic. Happy Pride, everybody. It is going to be something. In this, I mean, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. You're telling me. <laughs> Recently, uh, a buddy of mine and I were having a debate on on what the kind of rating should be for Pride. Like, if it's a daytime parade, should it be PG? Should it be PG-13? Should it be rated R? We and just survived yeah. a global pandemic. So we're talking R-rated Pride. Fly your colors. <laughs> So that, that I think is going to be a lot of fun. And I am, I am watching uh, with bated breath to see what happens next. Uh, the less, less fun one is I'm very closely monitoring the angling for the 2024 presidential primaries. And I know that it is June of 2021. But if you look at Ron DeSantis and some of the things that he is advancing in Florida, he is clearly intending to run for president. Oh, yeah. Uh, you look mm -hmm. at Eric Greitens in Missouri. And I think people are not going to take this one seriously initially, but you should. He right now is the front runner to be the next senator from Missouri. For those of y'all that don't know oh. Eric Greitens, he was uh, the elected governor and then was forced to resign by the party because there were campaign finance allegations that were terrible. But also, was this, he, was this back once upon a time when campaign finance, you know, uh, <laughs> violations actually mattered? To it was pretty pretty bad. Okay. I, I think I'll ask our viewers to okay. your viewers to, to look it up. But he also tied up his mistress. Uh, against her will, took photos of her, and then used those to blackmail her. Please fact check that for me. But, uh, and yeah, that was a real, that was really bad uh, for obvious reasons. And that was part of why he resigned. He did, there were no charges pressed. So he's using that to say that he is totally vindicated. That oh, is untrue. Wow. He is not going to jail, but he is in no way, shape, or form vindicated. He did all of the things that he was accused of. He's just not going to jail for them, right? And that guy, if the election were held today, would get through the Republican primary, and if the general were held tomorrow, he would then be the next senator from the state of Missouri. That is a race that we have got to be monitoring. Uh, there, we're seeing more and more members of the congressional delegation jump in. Um, there's a couple other candidates that are that are involved, but he is going to use this if he wins to run for president. And he has got a lot of money behind him. He he is in, incredibly disciplined as a candidate, um, which is not clearly not the case in his personal life. But he is able to present himself in a way that appeals to the furthest right. Um, and I think that in my mind, he's kind of like one of the single scariest people running for office. Well, this is kind of a dark look ahead segment then because my story is about the lab leak theory, which now seems plausible. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, this, this is a theory that, you know, Trump, uh, the Republicans, um, like Trump and Tom Cotton pushed for their own reasons last year, which, uh, you know, while they were derided by Democrats in the media, this theory could actually possibly explain the origins of COVID-19. And so I'm thinking about what that will mean politically, um, especially for Trump himself, if he turns out to have been correct on this point, accidentally even, um, and the damage that it might inflict on the media that discounted the possibility in the beginning. And just so everyone's clear, the lab leak uh, theory is basically the, the idea that COVID-19 did mutate into existence in a, uh, in a lab in Wuhan, and escaped um, accidentally, which these which these which these viruses have been known to do uh, because of the inadequate um, you know biosecurity protocols at at certain facilities. And um, you know there are a number of threads to look at, including what it means for U.S.-China relations, um, gain of function research, which is this very now controversial um, type of scientific research around which basically. Uh, means that humans manipulate these viruses and give them advantages so that they can basically to try and find out what would happen if they became really deadly viruses. And then they, then they create them in a lab and then they can escape. And so this type of research is now becoming very controversial and people are looking at whether or not we should even be doing it because it can be so uh, deadly to humanity. Um, and so we'll be looking at this closely. Uh, last week, Biden asked the U.S. intelligence community to uh, to redouble their efforts to investigate the origins of COVID nineteen, and um, and and he he included the possibility that it could have come from a lab uh, in this request, and um, and he asked them to report back in ninety days. So we'll know I don't know eighty days or no or, or so from now what their determination is. Um, I, I think good for him, Ron, honestly. I'm glad that he's doing yeah. this because I think what's alarming is that we're seeing that there were emails as early as beginning of December, um, uh, emails in December, I guess, of 2019 through the State Department um, that people were told to stop looking at it because it would open a can of worms, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that idea of let's not do the work because we're afraid of the possible outcome yeah. is not how we want Washington running. Right. So if those are real State Department emails, that's I'm I'm yeah. glad that he's investigating I'm, and calling for that, you know? Yeah. This yeah. is it's just so frustrating though, because it actually reminds me a little bit of the the Jeffrey Epstein situation, which I swear there's like a through line. Uh you know <laughs> what? that yes, yes. Okay. Ready for this? All so right. the Jeffrey Epstein situation was terrible because all of the QAnon folks, they see that and they're like, oh, we were right. See? Oh, we were right yeah. all along, right? Yeah. And now all the kind of people that have been saying racist things and really, really frightening things, they yeah. can point to this and be like, yeah. see, yes. we were actually right all along. Yes. And like just that little shred of truth that's then distorted that's exactly and used to further these conspiracy theories yes. is so frustrating. Yeah. And we keep, it just keeps happening. Yeah. UFOs yeah. is another one where this is happening, by the way. Where everyone's like, it was a, well, it was a conspiracy theory until like six weeks ago, and now it's a thing. Well, so. until September of 2020. But anyway, yeah. that we did a whole we did a whole segment on that. I yeah. think we did it for Politicology Plus members. But uh, speaking of which, we'll jump into that in just a moment. But <laughs> before we let you go and go into Politicology Plus, where can people find you on the internet, Liz? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at underscore Liz Gilbert. Zach? I am on Twitter at at Zach CZ, and Zach is spelled Z-A-C-K. My name is Zach, not Zach. Let's get that right, right now. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. 
Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we can't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. And if you haven't already, you can also help us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode. Make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.